podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. October the 10th marks World Mental Health Day. Mental health is perhaps an unreported and under-discussed issue in the world of snooker. Here, after all, is an almost uniquely individual sport. The mentality to play snooker at the highest level requires players to retreat into themselves. It's no coincidence that so many of the sport's great champions have been introverts. But is this, in fact, creating wider problems? Away from any perceived glamour, the professional snooker circuit involves a lot of time, indeed arguably too much time, for introspection. The plane journeys, the nights alone in hotel rooms, etc. More than one player has found themselves feeling isolated, anxious and depressed. One of them is Martin Gould, who spoke at the end of last season about his own problems. Martin speaks to me in this podcast, in his own words, about his own story. He hopes it will encourage others who are going through a rough time to seek help, particularly men for whom the subject of mental health is often taboo. The biggest single killer of men under 50 in Britain is suicide. This is a stark fact, but there is help out there. The WPBSA are working with Sporting Chance, set up by former Arsenal and England footballer Tony Adams. They offer confidential support for emotional and behavioural problems. The WPBSA also work with the charity Silence of Suicide, a free and confidential service which offers people the opportunity to discuss their emotional well-being. Neil Tompkins, who Martin mentions, is the WPBSA's first dedicated players relations manager, someone who can help players find the best possible help. The interview with Martin Gould talks through his snooker career and concludes with us discussing his recent problems. In the best traditions of this podcast, there's some background noise. We were at the Championship League and there was other stuff going on backstage. Martin also swears briefly and is immediately regretful, but I think we can all get over that. You can check out more information about the issues discussed here on WPSA.com. But now here's the Snooker Scene podcast with Martin Gould. Martin, how did you discover snooker? Um... I think it, I was probably around about two years old, something like that. My dad religiously used to watch World Championship. Um, the story I've been told was when I was about a little nipper, having nappy changed, uh, and then put into my cot to be going to sleep. Apparently, I heard the snooker music, and I, it was like I rose from the dead. Uh, and apparently, I just sat up, and I started watching TV. Um, so... I suppose they took that as a bit of a sign. Um, maybe I just like the music. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. Um, and then, sort of from about two and a half, three, I always had a small little table in the house, and I was all you could never get me off it. Um, my sister bought me a little bit of a like a five by three or six by three when I was sort of a little bit older and a little bit taller. And uh, again, you just could not get me off it. Mm. I mean, that's young though, isn't it? Two or three, I mean, we hear like Stephen Hendry was yeah. 11 when he got his small table, but that's young. Do, what do you think it was? Can you explain why you were attracted to it? I don't know, it was just one of those. I just, Like I say, I heard the music and it just seemed as though it was just something that I obviously liked. Obviously, I wouldn't have had a clue what was going on, but I used to, like my dad always used to have the two weeks off for the World Championship because mm. you never, had, back in them days, the good days, you used to never miss a ball. Mm. Now you have to press red buttons, this button, that button, come back three days later and watch the watch the decider and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I've always watched it with my dad. Um, my dad, no one in my family really, my dad plays a little bit, what I used to. Could never, his highest break was only 35, so mm. it's not like he played much. Um, when I was about eight, nine, I, I got barred from the local pub across the road because I was beating all the adults on the pool table. <laughs> they moved the age to <clears throat> 14. And when I turned 14, they moved it to 16. So, yeah, they, I've, I've had um, some fun and games mm. trying to play at times. But they're, they're the pool team across the road from me, when I was about nine, ten, they wanted me to play for them. So what we had to do is we used to get both sets of teams to crowd around the pool table so no one could see over just so I could play obviously yeah. it was handy because I was short so <laughs> but yeah so and when did you sort of progress to like full size snooker tables and, and, and did you start entering like the junior events and so on no, I never played a right. jun- junior event um, anything like that um, started playing probably on the full size table 12, 13 uh, I used to go to Riley's in Wildstone Harrow Wildstone they used to do like under 16 tournaments every like Saturday or Sunday. I used to win all of them. 
it got to the point where a lot of people didn't want to play anymore because they, they just said, well, we might as well just give him the money now. Um, stuff like that. But uh, I never had a coach. I had one brief coaching lesson when I was about 13 from Jeff Folds and the only thing that he asked me to change was just how I used the bridge because mm. I don't know if people were aware of this. I, I didn't have the conventional hand down like that. I used to have my thumb over the top of the cue yeah. and so I used the cue underneath. Yeah. That was the only thing that he asked me to change. He said, other than that, everything else was okay. Mm. Um, once I turned 18, I stopped playing pool. I used to play pool for London, England. I've won the European un Junior Under-18s European Championship. Lost in the final of the World Juniors as well to Kurt Morris. Won loads of team events with England at pool and stuff like that. And then once I turned 18, I just went, right, going to snooker now, play on the Challenge Tour. Didn't play any other events mm. so the first couple of years or so on the challenge tour literally were if I didn't win like if if I didn't win a frame in one visit I didn't win a frame right. um, I, I used to lose matches 4-3 because I refused to play safe mm. I just used to go for everything pretty much like I am now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah back in them days I was a little bit too raw so did um, you say that was something like that could be a career or were you just sort of playing because you like playing um, something that I wanted to do for a career obviously you, you always get people telling you you're not going to be good enough and so on and it was a little part of me in my backbone that was like oh, I'm going to prove all you lot wrong and say like, I am capable and I think I've shut a few people up over the years so uh, prove people wrong but yeah I, I did enjoy it as well um, but yeah I didn't play much snooker I, obviously I used to play snooker a lot but mm. I didn't play any tournaments yeah. or anything like that as a kid I used to, I just came I remember being 18 playing first challenge tour event people were looking at me going who the hell is this mm. like, we used to have Monday night competitions in my old snooker club in North Harrow and like people used to turn up that would be there obviously it was handicapped and they'd take one look at me and they'd be like oh, I want to draw him because they're looking at me and they're thinking well he obviously can't play that much <laughs> And then, like they, one of them actually happened to draw me, and I pumped in 130 first poke, and he was like, "Maybe I don't want to play you then." <laughs> so, so, but 2002, you won the English amateur title. Now, obviously, that's you know a very recognised event. Yeah, that was a breakthrough of sorts, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, I didn't even know nothing about it. It was only um, one of the Challenge Tour events in Swindon. Malcolm Form pulled me to one side. He said, "I don't know if you're interested, but they're doing an English amateur event." maybe you might fancy it yeah why not give it a crack didn't expect to win it on my first attempt um, I remember pl we played the final funny enough in Kings Lynn and I was just in Kings Lynn a couple of weeks ago visiting my sister because she's moved down towards that way and I couldn't find I, I had no recollection where the club was but I think the club's still there um, didn't get a chance to go and see it so it would have been nice to have just nipped in and just mm. seen if what was different about the place. Um, but yeah, it was. Yeah, I just remember. I think I beat Martin O'Donnell on the way. That was. Um, I think I beat Ale yeah, I beat Alex Davis and Craig Taylor in the final. I think I beat Ben Fitzgerald along the way as well. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those weird experiences. Just didn't expect it and. Mm. I happened to win it, so it was, it was great. And then you, eventually, you're on the the pro tour. It was a different time to now. There weren't as many tournaments, but what was that like? Because suddenly it's sort of serious, then, isn't it? It's, it is literally a profession. Yeah, well, I, I, winning the English amateurs didn't actually get me on the mm. tour, though. Um, I think there was some strings pulled to stop me from getting on because normally the English amateur champion mm. at that time got got a spot and it went to someone else. I think it was someone like Ricky Walden or oh. someone got the spot. So uh, that got my back up a little mm. bit, and then I finished number one on the challenge tour the following year. So I was like, mm, "You can't stop me now, mm. <laughs> unless there's some, unless that you find a way of physically <laughs> stopping me. There is no way you can stop me now." So I got on the got on through the challenge tour, but the o three o four season, the first first few events, yeah, like only only having six, it was really difficult. Yeah. Um, and then my mum fell really ill, yeah. so uh, she fell ill just over the, that that Christmas, and deteriorated very dramatically. 
and that kind of made me not want to play. Um, I remember going to play the Welsh Open qualifiers in Pontins and just before I was leaving my sister rung me and she goes, um, before you go can you pop into the hospital? Yeah, yeah, sure, what's up? She said, no, just pop in, the doctors want to talk to you and I'm like, what do the doctors want to talk to me for? So I popped in and I've seen my mum first and spoke to her and she had a look on her face as if, I don't know if she actually knew or whether anyone had said anything to her, but they had spoke to her and said, well, she had that look on her face as if she knew something was wrong. Because mm. like, for me to have had to have turned up, so the doctor pulled me in and literally said, your mum's got probably three to six months. Oh, fuck. Pardon. I was like, what the hell? So um, I, I walked back in just to see my mum before I went. Uh, and she could tell that I looked like a ghost because mm. I just turned white and um, yeah I, I spoke to her and I said look if you don't want me to go I won't go she said no no you go, you go and do your job and I'm like well, how am I supposed to do my job now I'm like mm. I, 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 I remember I played Lee Walker in the match that I had to play and one minute I was fine next minute I it just like everything was hitting me and then I lost 5-3 I think it was uh, and I just, I just remember just wanting to just give it all up. I didn't want to play. I was like, oh, I wanted to try and do as much as I could to keep my mum with me as long as possible. Yeah. Um, in the end, we brought my mum home. So I, I was basically a living carer. Me and my sister took it in turns. Like, sometimes my sister would come in the morning, or I'd come in the evening. Or if well, I, I lived there anyway, so... We had, obviously, your carers coming in and stuff, but, yeah, me and my sister did everything together. And then, um, it, it, in, fit, in fact, that actually brought me and my sister probably a lot closer together. Yeah. Uh, we had sort of drifted. Mm. And then that I think that sort of just said, well, instead of being so far apart, mm. that just drifted me and her together. I have got a half-brother as well. I, and... I won't say too much about him. <laughs> we don't talk. Um, I've not really spoke to him for about 15 years, maybe even longer. The last time I spoke to him was when his dad passed away. I just, like, I, obviously I've got different father to them, but same mother. And, um, yeah, I just, I was obviously a little bit upset for him and my, and my sister when he passed away. I think that was 2015 because I think it was just before I went to Australia so but yeah that was 03 04 I think I played one year on the Pios tour the following year my heart was just not in it um, financially I couldn't afford to do it either um, a lot of traveling I, I was just turning up to events going right looking at draws and going well, if I can nick that one that pays that bill if I can nick that match it pays that bill and it, in the end it, it just got to the point where I was like I, I, I have to get a proper job and I started working a bit instead of playing snooker and in all fairness I didn't actually miss it well, I was going to ask you that because you know you, you said you've been gripped by it since you were two yeah, I, but I guess sort of real life took over a little yeah, bit didn't it real, real life I had to grow up very quickly I realise now I've got no one to literally wipe my backside anymore I've got to do everything myself um, so I had to grow up I was only 22 at the time when my mum died so mm. literally I'm still a little kid yeah. I'm still getting away with murder at that point <laughs> and now all of a sudden my life's completely changed so yeah my dad then moved away six months after my mum passed away so I literally it just felt like I was on my own um, it, it was a case of like I say just didn't miss playing snooker I'd played the odd game now and again just with a couple of friends but and it was sort of like 06 where a mate of mine said to me look seriously I don't want you to waste your life not playing snooker we all know how good you are <clears throat> and he entered me without telling me in the English amateurs for 07 so I just remember seeing this big huge envelope on the floor back in the day when we used to receive post postal drawers and stuff mm. obviously not not like it is now where it's all online and um, yeah I remember just seeing this big envelope and I was Jesus is this so I've opened it and I'm looking and I've seen my name and I'm, it says that I'm playing so and so and so and so on this day I'm like 
I rung the ASB up and I said, is there some mistake? Mm. And they went, no, you, you paid your entry. And I went, I never paid no entry. And well, your, your name's in the draw. If you don't want to play, don't turn up. And I was like, OK, well, I looked at it. And I, I, rung, I rung one person up that I thought it could be, and his name was Paul Brennan. And I said to him, did you enter me in this event? He's gone, yeah. He said, I'm going to take you to every, wherever it's got to be, I'll, I'll take you as well. He said, don't worry about anything. I was like, okay, on your back it is. I said, I'll, I'll tell you now, I'm not going to practice for it. I'll just have a quick knock beforehand and just go. Mm. And I ended up winning it. Yeah. So, and then, but in that time, when it got to the nitty gritty part, a company had contacted me, uh, Super Tough Glass, and they said to me, look, if you do get your tour card, we'll, we'll sponsor you for a couple of seasons and see how it goes and mm. go from there. And I was with them for about six, seven seasons. Mm. Uh, I, they did a lot for me. I'm, I'm hoping I did a lot for them in, as well. So It should be said as well, that English amateur final, I think David Lilly went in off the last black, which yeah. is a kind of I mean, it's a bizarre way you ended up in it, but a bizarre way to end as well. Yeah, it was. Um, the black was on the black cushion, white was sort of just halfway between the pink spot, black spot, on towards the side cushion. I'm, I'm looking at him and I can see him lining up the black and I'm thinking on the star table, yeah, take this on all day, you ain't putting this. And I just see the black wobble and it drop. And I was like, wow, fair play. And my head did drop. But an instinct just told me to look up. And as I looked up, I could see the white going straight in the middle pocket. Mm. It was, it, it, no, no, unless it took a huge roll off, it was going nowhere but in the middle of the pocket. Well, obviously, all the David's fans and friends and that were cheering. I only had my dad sat in the back row. <laughs> my dad was obviously getting up, was upset, and then all of a sudden, I, I caught his eye and I said, watch the cue ball. Mm -hmm. He was like, what? <laughs> I said, watch the white ball. And then all of a sudden, the white dropped in. All of his mates have just gone <gasps> like that, and he's fallen to the floor. And my dad's jumped up and I'm gone, get the <laughs> in there. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I've now looked. I want to look away because I'm thinking now this could end up in a riot because <laughs> it's only me and him against that lot. So, but yeah, it was a, it was a weird. It was a good final. It was a pretty good standard to be fair. I think that there was one frame in it what what I stole from him. I needed I think four snookers, and I managed to pinch it, and uh, I've, that that kind of helped me win it, and then. Since winning English amateurs, mm. I've never really looked back. Yeah, obviously I've spoken to Dave. Dave's obviously seen me a couple of times. I still think it's it must still hurt him. I'm pretty sure it does. It probably hurts him just as much seeing me progress the way I have as well. Mm. I, I don't mean that in a bad way or anything, but he's thinking that could have been me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you get back on the tour, and I remember. Um, I remember you beat Hendry at the Welsh. I think it was two thousand and nine. Yeah. Um, Welsh. Okay. And you, you would sort of known about it before then, but that seemed like a big result because he was, you know, Stephen Hendry. He's on television. Yeah. Did did that feel that way to you as well? Um, it was one of those type of games where I actually felt that I could beat him, hmm. even though I probably didn't have as many results behind me. I'd had actually had a good run prior to that because I think I qualified for the U UK that year I won three three matches to qualify for the UK and I lost to Murphy 9-7 Murphy went on to win it mm. but um, I remember playing Ma Matthew I played my first TV game in Northern Ireland and then I lost to Hendry the following game so and Hendry beat me 5-3 and I got I got the better of him that time 5-3 so I kind of knew that that was a very winnable game I knew I'm still playing the legend of the game at that time but it was one of those where I did fancy causing an upset. I think Joe Swell beat me in the following following round. Mm. Um, but it was just all very good learning curve for me. Mm. Like just nicking matches and they virtually guaranteed me to stay on tour as well. And I think I ended up qualifying for the Worlds that year as mm. well and lost to Mark Allen. So that was the icing on the cake of a, a great season but the Grand Prix was the, the event in that year that helped me because right. even though there was only six events the Grand Prix was round robin mm. so I got like five six matches in the group <clears throat> and I think that actually did me the world of good because it gave me a few more matches rather than maybe just playing one mm. and then who knows I may not have been sat here right now yeah yeah you mentioned the Crucible of course 2010 
um, qualified again. You know what I'm going to talk about, obviously, the Neil Robertson match. Um, what happened? <laughs> I have no recollection. I've had that erased permanently from well, my memory. Page. Well, let me remind you. No, I mean, it's, I think that's a perfect example of the sort of the unique nature of that tournament because there's no other event where you're playing over a series of days and you, I think you actually said afterwards, you said, well, I've never been 11-5 before in the World yeah. Championship. You're going into the next day in new territory. Yeah. Uh, the, the game against Marco was, like, I'd had, I'd played a couple of best in 19s but never in that sort of environment. So to have won that match there, it kind of just, I, it took the shackles off. Mm. I just went out and just wanted to play snooker against Neil. And for a, if, if, if that match could have finished on the Friday night, mm. there's no way he would have won. Mm. No way. I don't care who you are and what you say, there's no way he would have won. I, I think I would have won 13-5, 13-6 without that because I was on flight. Mm. I was on fire, literally. And... Um, yeah, the next day I just woke up, went to the practice room for that final session, and it felt like somebody had taken my right arm and exchanged it with someone else's. I just felt I couldn't hit a ball. Mm. And, and it, I got out there into the arena. I think I missed a black off the spot very early. That kind of unsettled me. And Ollie's going to hate me for this, but he's gonna. I'm going to have to mention the fact that when I actually did get my first opportunity... Ollie picked up the white by mistake. Leave him on tilt. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I still remind him of it now. <laughs> I know it's a long time ago, 10 years. But that 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 done me up as well. Because I think it was 11-7 when I finally got an opportunity and I felt like I was just getting myself back into how, I've, how good I was feeling. And I potted a pink in the corner. And funny enough, Makeda had done it in the morning mm. when I think it was... Maguire against Dot mm. but that was not an important time mm. I think it was 10-1 or 10-2 at the mm. time whereas this is 11-7 and it's my first opportunity of final session and I'm like it took four four or so minutes for him to replace everything mm. and I was like and then I missed the next red and then I didn't get another shot until about 11-10 mm. so I was now I'm now thinking that I'm destined here to fall apart I, in all honesty I don't even know how I won a frame in that final session uh, I just I think I went 12-10 then it went 12-11 12-12 and at 12-12 it was probably the best I ever felt in the the whole that final session I felt like I felt like I could win it in one visit mm. and I think I made 40 and I played a red to the green hole and I was walking as soon as I hit it because I'm thinking it's in and it's rattled and stayed there and that was and then it was game over mm. so yeah it, it was a bitter taste but I, I I used it to my advantage I was like it was a match where there was so many positives mm. to take from it I was like I just said to myself just keep playing this style of snooker rather than being negative or anything like that but so, not so much playing not to lose it was just I, I wasn't really expressing myself properly because mm. leading up to the world championship that was what actually did me a massive favour I played in the mixed pairs in uh, I think they played it in it wasn't the Northern Snooker Centre they played it somewhere else and I played with uh, Pam Wood obviously I didn't know what to expect from from Pam because I'd never seen her play play a little bit don't get me wrong she 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 did she basically asked for my advice as the match went on the matches went on and she pulled she pulled out a great couple of clearances when we needed them um but i just went there with, with the philosophy of going right i'm gonna have to go for everything here and it worked uh, we may have lost in the final to joe and his partner but i was like i found something mm. And I took that with me to the Crucible and I used that and then I was like, yeah, this this is the way for me to play snooker, all-out attack. Yeah, and and after that, in the next couple of years, things did start to happen for you. You, know, yeah. you got in the top 16, you won power snooker, you won a PTC, you won the shootout. You were becoming a top player, weren't you? Yeah. And, and that's the thing, you did actually, like you say, you did ultimately take the positives from that. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the, a few people criticised me because I stayed in Sheffield after I lost to Neil. And I was like, why would I want to go home and dwell on it mm. when if I can stay here in the moment? All right, if people want to keep asking me questions about it, yeah, let them. But I wanted. I thought to myself, if I go home, I might just sit there and I'll be 
start thinking too much about it and mm. maybe wanting to re-watch it or anything like that and I was like no no I'm staying in Sheffield I'm going to enjoy myself here stay in the moment stay with what was going on and I think that also helped because like I say I didn't go home I stayed there and I just anyway some people obviously said ah oh, how have you lost it happens mm. but for me it, I thought that it did me a world of good staying up there just keeping keeping in that uh, bubble shall we say yeah of what was going on um, and just use that to move forward and yeah that that was when the ranking system started to change as well because I think I went from like 46 to like 18 or mm. 20 and, and I was like blimey I've jumped 28 <laughs> places and I'm not here at all <laughs> so and then I got in the 16 qualified it would have what one thing that did upset me a little bit when I got in the 16 was he moved the Masters from off my back doorstep mm. to Halle Pally. Mm. Would have loved to have played at Wembley, just literally right on my doorstep. But just to have played at the Masters has been great. I'd love to play there again. Mm. I haven't had the opportunity, but there's still plenty of time yet. You never know, stranger things can happen. Definitely, and then we look at the 2015-16 season, obviously you get to the final in Australia, lose a really good match with, with John Higgins, and then of course the following February at mm. Berlin at the Temper Drone, which is a fantastic event, fantastic venue. You win your first ranking title. That must have been a very special moment. Yeah, the, the Aussie was... I felt that that week was my week. Mm. I felt that I was by far the best player that, in that event. And I, to come up one frame short, yeah, I was devastated. But I said to myself, that's a great platform to work with mm. for the rest of the season. We got to York... The infamous David Grace game, that's that was the, that season, yeah. uh, five one up, lost six five. I, I think uh, I I did hear some some of Faulty's commentary the other day, and he was talking about how he interviewed me after I lost that match, mm. six five, and how he was impressed with how I controlled myself because yeah. Terry, the referee, Cameron Ari, he. Um, called a miss the first time the second time but not the third time and in the heat of the moment they, you, you could have argued about it mm. and I was when he didn't call it I just got on with it I didn't I said alright okay no problem played my shot right, I lost the match but literally as I walked through the double doors at the barbican there's Neil standing there <laughs> with a microphone yeah. right under my nose and he I think he was hoping that I was going to flare up and I didn't and uh I just like I just basically said yeah referee's decision that's it you can't. I could argue until I was Papa Smurf in the face <laughs> I wouldn't have got it wouldn't have changed anything so I just, all I said was at the end of that interview I just said next ranking event I play in I'm winning because mm -hmm. I knew it was I was ready and I qualified for the German Masters and I booked my flight to go on the Tuesday because obviously it started on the Wednesday book Tuesday and I'd, I'd normally I do provisional booking I might say oh, I'll, I'll book for Friday give myself a couple of days and I said no I'm booking for Monday this is my event I'm winning this I said no one's stopping me and yeah it was by far the best five days I've ever experienced mm. and for it to be in the venue like the Temperdrome where the German fans absolutely love snooker I, and I mean properly love it they're so respectful, knowledgeable, everything. And I think a couple of years, a few years ago, I think I kind of took to them as well as they took to me because uh, Judd was playing Ronnie at one of the years I played there and they didn't come out and do an autograph session. And I was just like pottering around doing my normal stuff, just doing nothing really. <laughs> and. Um, I signed up one or two autograph books, done a couple of photos, and Jürgen Kessler come up to me and said, do you want to do the deal? I said, yeah, yeah, okay, no problem. Mm. Not a problem. Said, you won't get paid for it. I said, I wouldn't want to be paid for it. It's my pleasure. And I think that um, somebody said to me that they'd done like a German blog, snooker blog thing the next day, and they appreciated how much time and effort I took mm. to do all 1,500 people. Didn't leave anybody out. And I think that kind of won them over. And when I beat Judd in the quarters of the German Masters that year, when I won it, you could tell that the German fans loved it. Mm. 
they had a very soft spot for me and yeah it was one of those achievements where I was like I, I just remember before the final started standing on top of that yeah. that row there I, and I can hear the crowd like really getting pumped up mm. and I could feel the neck up, the hairs on the back of my neck they were literally about eight foot tall mm. I was like wow this is going to be unbelievable started off a bit sluggish but worked my way into the match and thankfully got to show that trophy to everybody in that crowd and yeah for anywhere to win a ranking event particularly a first one besides your, your main big venues without doubt I, I'm, I'm so happy it was there mm. really happy that's a, a great high point of your career of course you've spoken more recently of lower times um, snooker it's a very individual sport isn't it you spend a lot of time even just playing on your own you know you sat in the chair a long time tournaments it might sound glamorous flying around the world but it's basically airports and hotels and and sort of killing time and, and also if you lose in an event like China you know you just want to get home but mm. it takes the best part of a day I just wonder Martin when you first sort of felt that you you had a problem um, it's pretty hard to kind of finger point it mm. um, like you say it is, it's a lot of planes trains and automobiles I, I try and explain to a few people like my my one of my best mates, Ian Daniel, who lives in Scotland, I'm always talking to him because he, he suffers as well, not just me, he, he suffers with some OCD and a few other bits and pieces. So we tend to try and talk to each other and try and perk each other up if it, either of us are feeling down. And I, I tried to explain to him about the travelling and stuff like that because there's been a few times before I come public about what's going on, I said, I just don't want to do travelling. Mm. He's gone, you must love it. I'm like, I don't, I hate it. It got to the point where I started to, like, if, for instance, if I'd lost first match in China, I'd be, I'd ring my travel agent and I'd say, look, when can I get home? And they go, well, there's a flight at this time and there's a flight at that time. And it'd be a case of, like, the first flight might get me home, say, four o'clock the next day, and the other one will get me home sort of one o'clock. And I'd pay, like, sort of, ridiculous money to get that one o'clock yeah. one home rather than just saying well an extra couple of hours ain't gonna hurt mm. I just want to get home I, I'd paid stupid money at times to just change flights um, just to get away I think some of it um, I had a brief chat with my sister a couple of weeks ago I think some of it may have stemmed I know it's a long time ago but I didn't really grieve when my mum passed away mm. I just got on with life Maybe that had some some kind of bearing on it. Um, just things had started to hit me properly, and I just I I was finding myself looking at events and like Welsh Open was another prime example last uh, well this year, but last season uh, I drew Bingham in the first round. I booked my train to go up, and halfway up I was already on train line looking right. I'm playing Bingham at half four. If I get pumped four nil four one, I'll be on the train and by say half seven eight o'clock, mm. and I'll be home that night. And I'm, it got to, and like I'd done that a few times with events. I was just like, got once I got on the table, I was all right, but it's the lead up to it, like thinking, mm. oh, I don't want to travel all that way. Right, I, train rides are normally nice and comfortable. Headphones on, iPad on, watch film. I just wasn't enjoying travelling. Uh, wasn't enjoying going up the club. I'd go up the club and be in there about twenty minutes, half an hour, and I'm trying to find an excuse to get out. I'm trying to like just make up. I think I've had, I think I've had four new washing machines, a <laughs> uh, couple of new ovens, a couple of this. I've oh, I've got a delivery of this coming and yeah. and so on. And it gets to the point where I think people started to work out. You're making an awful lot of excuses here. Mm. But it's interesting because one of the things you said um, at the Crucible was that you were hiding it well. You yeah. were sort of finding ways of hiding it. And that, I guess, yeah. ties into what you also said about it's difficult to just talk about it, or particularly yeah. it, seems, it seems for men. So you were finding ways to try and cover yourself. Yeah, my dad, my dad used to ask me questions. He'd be like, I'm pretty sure he'd, he must have worked out something wasn't right. He just didn't, didn't really want to... I, I suppose he didn't really want me to answer it more than anything mm. 
Like he thought my dad's all, my dad's the first person basically that messages me once I finished the match, whether it be well done or unlucky. A couple of times I sent him messages back after I, especially if I'd lost, I'd just send him a pile of rubbish. Mm. And like he'd ring me and be like, "What are you on about?" I said, well, I just "Don't deserve to win when I play like that." And then like there was a couple of times he'd ring me and he'd say, "Like is everything all right?" Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Everything rosy. He's gone, you sure? And I'm like, yep, I'm fine. Happy, happy as Larry. I knew I wasn't. Mm. But I think it was the fact that no one had really, like, pressured me into a corner and said, like, I think something's wrong. Mm. And, like, because everything was all on the phone, they're not seeing your uh, yeah. emotions yeah. and how you're, how you're reacting to certain questions. Yeah. So that's, that was one good way of block, blocking it. Um, but I've always, I've, I think I've heard you even mention it. Like I don't give an awful lot away anyway when I'm playing, particularly when I'm playing, and mm. I don't give an awful lot away when I'm away from the table. But I think that's that's the thing about snooker, like, and you associate it with, for example, Steve Davis. It's all about actually bottling up emotions, isn't it? Keeping yeah. them inside. I guess the problem though when you do that is you, there's no outlet for them. No. So and that if that transfers to to real life, then then you you will have problems. Yeah. Um, at the shootout, for instance, if, I'm, if it weren't for the fact that I'd had a couple of beers, I don't know if I would have said anything. Mm. Um, I was with two friends of mine, very good friends of mine, two of my golf buddies, rather, and um, we're at the shootout. I'd lost to Higginson. It coincided, coincided with the fact that I knew I, I had a problem with my eyes as well, mm. so I couldn't see what I was doing. <laughs> Literally, like everything was a blur. And I'm like, right, uh, that needs to change. And I was, and also, I, I could tell that Watford, the, where it was at the concert, I, I lived 10 minutes away. I, I didn't want to be there. Mm. I just couldn't wait to get out. I, I arrived there, and I, I jokingly said to Mark when I arrived, I've gone to him, can I go home now? Mm. He was like, you just got here. I was like, yeah, I want to go home. Mm. So as the evening progressed, we sat in the me and the two mates sat sat in the players' lounge, and we were like, "I said to them, what, 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 what's the plans for the evening?" They go, "Whatever you want to do, we're happy with. Fancy a couple of pints, maybe." So the first one came, that went down rather well. Second one arrived. By the time I spoke to him, I'd probably had about seven or eight. The talking, so we talk about Mark Williams. Yeah. He's not not the world not, champion, not, but he's a security no, guard. Yeah, the security yeah. guard. Yeah, for world snooker. Yeah, um, I'd had about seven or eight pints. Seen a couple of people that I knew. They were waiting to go back in the auditorium because they'd missed the frame, so they were waiting. And like, I spoke to them briefly, and I think that I'd actually started to say a few things that I shouldn't have done to them. And I was kind of like, yeah, they're like, I'll. We look forward to seeing you play here next year. I said, oh, I won't be playing here next year. Mm. And they were, oh, you will be. Oh, trust me, I will not be playing next year. Um, I think that kind of hit them a little bit. And they were like, because I think I was quite authoritative mm. with how I was speaking as well. So as the evening progressed, I seen Mark. And I think I'd just been outside for a cigarette and just some fresh air. And I walked in and I just went, I, I, I just, I seen Mark on his own and I thought, I've got to say something. And I just, I said, Mark, can I have a word? And I said, look, I don't, something's not right. I said, I haven't felt right for months. Uh, I don't want to play snooker, I don't want to travel, I don't want to practice, I don't want to do anything. I said, if I'm at home, I'm in comfort zone. I, I kind of got to the position where I felt like becoming a hermit. Didn't want to leave. Uh, obviously, I'd pop out to go and get little bits and pieces, bread, milk, your essentials, sort of thing. And I spoke to him, and like, I, I just remember the look on his face, and he was like in utter shell shock. Blimey, you've been hiding that well for a few mm. months because every time you, we see you, you always seem cheerful, mm. always talkative, you always be nice and polite to everyone. Like, yeah, what I can do, well, that's how, how I'm supposed to act anyway. So. I was like, that, that's not a problem for me. I just, I knew something wasn't right and I pulled him. Next day, I, I, I won't lie, I did wake up quite late. <laughs> I did wake up with a bad head. Yeah. Um, and I'd had about 10, 15 missed calls from my dad, so my dad started to panic. And, I, and that coincided with the fact of then Neil rung me 
Neil Tompkins rung me that night and he said, right, Mark's spoken to me and and I had a long, I think I was on the phone to Neil for about an hour, hour and a half, just explaining bits and pieces. So he put me through to Sporting Chance. I spoke to them, I went to see my own doctor. But then my dad rung me again on the Sunday morning and that was when he finally, he bit the bullet and he went, right, I'm not getting off. If you don't answer me on the phone, I'm driving down to you to come and speak to you. So he said, "What? what's going on? I said, I don't want to play. I, don't, I said, and I just told him, I said, I haven't slept properly for months. Um, my body felt like, oh, my body felt like I was going to give up. Um, I just, I've never felt pain like it in my legs or anything. I'd lay in bed and I'd be like, I, I'd just get into bed and I feel as if I'm getting comfortable and then my legs start aching and I'm like, I've got to go for a little walk around again and <clears throat> I'd go to sleep at like 10 o'clock at night and I'd wake up at like half past two and I'd be watching TV till six in the morning. Then I might nod off again for a brief hour or two, and then I'd just get up, and instead of staying in bed all day, I'd just go and sit on the sofa. Mm. That was my daily routine. I was like, well, I'm not gonna go up to the club because I'm, I'm knackered, mm. I couldn't sleep. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was nice to talk to someone, because um, as, soon as, as soon as I think I did speak to someone about it, whether it being Mark Williams or doctors or anyone from Sporting Chance I was like it felt like 20 stone had been lifted off my shoulders mm. I felt light and I didn't certain other parts of me didn't ache as much mm. so I, I went and saw the doctor I got him to do some blood tests and stuff it did turn out I was <clears throat> very low on vitamin D which is I did some checking up on it and it's something where it can cause your body to ache you can feel and you certainly don't sleep mm. so that that was that was playing up also in that time my back was playing up my neck was playing up i was constantly seeing osteopath my osteopath jason clemo uh weekly sometimes twice a week just to i, I felt like if i didn't see him i couldn't play snooker because literally I, i'd bend down and <clears throat> i wasn't sure if i was going to get back up again um I just felt like there was a load of little trigger things that was all happening at mm. once and it just all blew up mm. and it got to the point where I just knew I had to get something done mm. otherwise I'm not saying that I would have done anything stupid or anything like that I've never got into that position but I, I got too comfortable in my own way of living and I don't think I would have come out of it otherwise mm. I would have been just one of those type of people that just don't leave the house mm. apart from uh, it might have even became a case that I'd start getting shopping and everything all delivered so I, that way I don't have to leave the house so I was kind of glad that I did manage to get speaking to someone and a couple of other friends very good friends of mine they I spoke to them as well and, and we got into a habit of they, they managed to find a way to get me out of the house mm. whether it be for a walk or anything like that so yeah that that all coincided sort of like February March and then lockdown came mm. and then yeah lockdown actually probably did me a favour in the in the in the way of if the world qualifiers have been when they were supposed to be I, I, I was never I, I even contemplated not even entering because mm. I, I, I thought to myself what's the point going to play in an event that my heart's not going to be in mm. and with lockdown I, I had three three four weeks at home just constantly at home I did pop out now and again just do just for a little walk and stuff but then my club had said to me look we'll, we'll, we'll let you in because I had ballooned in weight as well because you sat around doing yeah. nothing and you're going to eat yeah. constantly I, I, <clears throat> I think I went up to about 14 stone and that's very heavy for me and then uh, that coincided that the club decided to let me uh, have come in on a daily basis, Monday to Friday, I was allowed one person in with me. So my good friend Mark Smith, he came every day for about six, seven weeks, just picked balls out for me every day. I lost the two and a half stone in no time. I felt a lot more fitter, healthier. My mind felt a lot more better. I think if I had to have done practice in lockdown on my own, it might have been a different story because I don't think I would have been able to have done it on my own. 
think the fact that I had someone with me just not so much jeering me on but just having someone to communicate with mm. and talk with but that's that seems to be the common thread Martin is actually talking about it yeah. isn't it? it you know and firstly accepting you've got a problem but then opening up and it does seem that men traditionally have found it difficult around mental health because for example if you break your leg and you come in on crutches we can see you've got a problem yeah. but it's different when it's a kind of mental issue yeah. um, what have you sort of learned from from the, the experience then and, and what advice would you give because you can't be the only snooker player I no, guess, no, like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'd be um, I've had a couple of other snooker players message me since uh, mm. they've told me what they've seen me do is push them to get some help of some description um, yeah, it's it's for men. It's very difficult. Like you could, before, obviously, well, back in the day when you had more, you didn't have to be limited of how many people you're with. You'd be proud of you, and you'd be you might say something to one of your mates saying, "Oh, I don't feel that great," and some feel something's not right, and they'd be like, "Snap out of yeah, it!" Yeah, have like, a drink or something. Yeah. Have a yeah, drink. Yeah, yeah. Get 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 steamrolled <laughs> yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But that would actually mean like as much as you might feel good for the rest of that night but the next day you're going to feel even worse because mm. not only you're going to have a hangover or anything like that but everything's just going to be still there and you're going to be like that mm. hasn't helped yeah so but for you traditionally women love to natter <laughs> they do love to natter uh, and they find it a lot more easier to express themselves mm. whereas for us us men we, we find it like Especially people that are in the limelight. Like you've had Freddie Flintoff come out, mm. Andrew Beef Johnson's just come out recently saying that they've had problems. Got the Beef Johnson, I saw his in- interview the other day and he, he, he was getting people telling him he's a joke mm. of a golfer. Mm. I'm, I'm like, he, he's expressing himself on the golf course and he's loving it. Mm. I, 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 was, I was the opposite. I'm thinking he's great for the game. But it, but it's the thing where once you start hearing negative comments, they overwhelm from the positive. So you mm. forget about the positive, you just take all the negatives and you're looking at it. Social media is another case. Like, for instance, there'd be 100 comments about a, a match that I've played and I'll find the one negative. <laughs> and I used to just look at the negative and I'm like, yeah. Rather than thinking like, there's 99 other people there that are over the moon with what I've done, but that I'd be looking at that one person that has criticised me, and then as it as time goes along, you just constantly keep looking for negatives rather than the positives, yeah. and it it can get to you, and it does. It's it's for us men, it's very difficult for us just to like pull someone up and say look have a chat mm. it's personal but can we have a chat mm. like some, some men won't know how to react mm. like and when I did see my doctor I, I think he actually done me a favour I spoke to a woman rather than a bloke I don't know why but I just got a feeling it, it done me better to have spoken to a woman doctor rather than a male I think because women know how to mm. speak to people that have got problems whereas men don't I know they're professionals and stuff so they should know but I just feel that with having a conversation with a woman would be far easier mm. than speaking to another bloke so so this will happen just this year Martin I mean, how, how are you feeling now? I feel a lot better mm. um, there are times I have been told there will be times where there's I may get a blip um, touch wood that hasn't happened as of yet um, I haven't had that feeling of like travelling to a tournament going when can mm. I come home mm. uh, the, the two bubbles that we've had to do yeah I, I have found them difficult but I've been okay I haven't like felt last night maybe uh, towards the end sort of like because I was expecting to be allowed out of my room sort of half eight nine o'clock by about half seven I was starting to want to mm. do Spider-Man and climb the walls <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to get out and get some fresh air mm. I know like we can't go out out but we've got the terrace yeah, bar and yeah, that yeah. I wanted to just get some fresh air and I'll, it got to about quarter to, uh, quarter to ten half ten and I'm looking at it and I'm going well I might as well go to bed now because it's obviously that I'm not going to get the results tonight 
And I was like, oh. and then all of a sudden I got knock, knock, knock. You've tested negative, and I was like, get me out, <laughs> get me out of the room. Because <laughs> I think it is very difficult being stuck in that room. Like I, I brought a DVD player with me, so I watched some films and stuff. But I just learned from the experience of Sheffield, from that bubble. I thought I better take my DVD player because mm. if I don't, I'm just going to be twiddling my thumbs. <clears throat> I'm not an avid watcher of snooker. Mm. I do it for my, <clears throat> I do it for my own job. So the last thing I want to do is watch everybody else playing. So, <clears throat> so yeah. But going forward, will you find you sort of have to, I guess, mo- almost monitor your situation and keep keep check on it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I will I'd definitely be keeping an eye on it. Um, as I say, because we're playing a lot of events in Milton Kings, I'm only half an hour away, so mm. that does make things a little bit more easier. Yeah. Um, I don't drive, so obviously I travel a lot on the train, but my dad's... My dad's retired now, so um, if if need be, if I feel as if I can't do a train journey mm. or do anything like that, my dad will come pick me up and he'll drop me off. Mm. Good old daddy. <laughs> so, And, of course, you've you just been in a final. I mean, what a start to the season, yeah. very nearly won that tournament. Um, it's kind of just, I guess, evidence of the way things have, have turned back around for you. I, to, to be quite truthful with you, I wasn't expecting to get to the final. I'd only booked the, the two nights right. at the start because I'd, I'd drawn John Higgins' first round. And I, I, and this is another thing I've heard Neil say. He wasn't convinced that I'd only practice for two days. I can tell you now, <laughs> I only did two days' practice. I played one day with Matthew Glasby just on the Tuesday and then I had two hours knock on my own on the Wednesday since the Crucible any other time you would have just seen me dressed in golf clothes mm. playing golf I, I literally only did two days practice leading up to it but I felt that with everything that had gone on at the Worlds not just from on the table but off the table I just needed to t- take a complete break because mm. uh, it, it, it was mentally and physically draining and I know I only got to the second round mm. but with every like doing interviews in between yeah. and or you have a little bit mm. and like playing best of 25 you, it takes a lot out of you um, and especially best of 19 as well beforehand and the qualifiers leading up to it so yeah it was like sort of four three three weeks of high continuous concentration mental strength um, and I just kept saying I'm a, uh, all I did every day before I play a match or anything like that. I just woke up and just said to myself enjoy the day don't let if somebody tries to upset you don't let them just enjoy the day forget about anything else it's quite difficult during the qualifiers because you're literally just all in it was like being in Big Brother house just <laughs> like stuck yeah, stuck yeah. there but um, yeah it was when I, I, I playing John on the Monday that was probably my best match until I got to like quarter semis. Mm. The, for the next two or three matches, I just, just basically just ground out victories. Um, my match against Peter Devlin, for instance, I, I, I was starting to get a little bit agitated. I, you wouldn't have seen it. Even if it, it was on TV, you still wouldn't have seen right. that I was getting agitated. But I was getting agitated. No disrespect to Peter, but it was a type of match where... I was always in control, but I kept making stupid little mistakes, and it was letting him back in, so I was getting myself out of it, thinking, well, I should have already been back in my hotel mm. half an hour, 40 minutes ago, and I'm still here playing, and then from 4-1, it went to 4-3, and I'm like, I've got to get this finished, because I can't allow it to go 4-4, because anything can happen, and I decide, and I managed to finish it 5-3, and then I played Jan, who I'd never beat before, being Tao, and I managed to nick that 5-4 and I, I I knew the semi against Judd I, I hadn't, hadn't watched much of Judd but obviously he, he was flying and he was pumping everybody and I was just like I'm just going to go out there and play my own game which is similar to his and I just said I'm just gonna, my intentions are to play better than him and I did and I don't think he was overly impressed with the fact that I took it to him and said Basically, I was just like, there you go. I can do it just as well as you can. Right? You're world number one, world champion. 
won everything else. That means nothing to me. You're just another player. And I went out there and did my job, and I did it very well. Mm. And then the final against Mark, obviously at 4-0, I, I was spitting me dummy out, wanting to go <laughs> home, crying my eyes, ready, screaming for, like, wanting me mum, because I was like, wanting to say he's not letting me play because <laughs> apart from the first round I didn't get a look mm. to 4 nil, and in, in all fairness he should have gone 5 nil. when he didn't go 5 nil, that it, it was like I'd gone from sort of slump like that and I, my back came and I, was, <laughs> uh, and I was ready to go and it was a great game after that mm. it was disappointed to have lost but we all missed balls that we shouldn't and we all pop balls that we shouldn't and um, yeah it's just part and parcel of the game and I enjoyed it I didn't didn't get disheartened and mm. like sit in the room going oh, can't believe I lost that or anything just went back to the uh, players lounge part that we had and just had a few drinks with the crew that were there still there and then my dad picked me up on the Monday morning went and saw me osteopath in the afternoon and then I haven't done I, I haven't practiced this week mm. uh, that was the, the, when I played Igor this morning that was the first ball I'd hit since losing to Mark so but one thing you did mention afterwards and I'll, this is what I want to end on the glasses right so for years we've talked about you playing in essentially n- normal spectacles you've now got the snooker specs and clearly they've made a difference yeah yeah they have made a difference yeah um, the, the, uh, my friend Mark Smith I'd seen him wearing them sort of around about this time last year I don't look too bad actually <coughs> so I, I just said to him look I'm, I'm not looking at changing but I said let me go and see this guy so we drove down there had the eye test because I, I was getting a little bit agitated with my own optician I was thinking no matter how many times I tell him can you just change this change that they weren't getting it right mm. So I was like, let me go and see this guy. And I had like an hour and three quarter test. Like it, it was like, literally, I didn't know an eye test could take that long. I thought, all you got to do is just check both mm. eyes, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it was about an hour and three quarters and it was like thorough. So I had done that and he made these glasses for me that I'm wearing at the minute. Not the snooker ones, but my normal day-to-day ones. And... I started wearing them straight away and I was like, these are really comfortable. Like they're, they're springy, like you can't break them. They're just like really comfortable. So he made me the snooker glasses. I said, look, I'm not promising I'm gonna wear them. I said, I'll have them, but I'm not promising I'm gonna wear them. So he made me two pairs. He made me the pair that I'm wearing and another pair. So I tried the other pair first. I was like, yeah, they're all right. And I was like, not overly convinced. And then I tried the other pair and I was like, oh, these feel better. These do feel better. I said, the only thing that I didn't like was sometimes when I'm sat there, I can, like, the way that they sit like that, I'm literally looking straight down and mm. I can see, don't see any glass or anything. Mm. I just can see straight down. But I said, I said, oh, if, I, if I was to try a pair, I said, that will be the pair. So um, once the shootout had been done, I was like... Yeah, I'm gonna have to try them now. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't blag this anymore. <laughs> can't blag it anymore. Can't get away with it. It's otherwise there's no point in me playing. So I, I tried them out in Gibraltar. N- not many people noticed that I was wearing them in Gibraltar. A couple of people did because they saw me put them on. Mm. But I don't. Um, when I when I played a couple of the matches, nobody noticed I was wearing anything different because one thing that people had noticed is when I was standing up, if I, if they looked at me from side on. It didn't look like I was wearing anything different. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's a result. No one can tell. And then World Championship qualifiers turn up. And I, I, you, you didn't tweet me personally, but it, mm. you involved my name. And yeah. I found a little way of finding <laughs> stuff out on my Twitter where I can see if people don't actually put my, use my Twitter name, I can find just my own name on it. Yeah. And I seen that you'd like huge news <laughs> and stuff like that and I was like well the secret's yeah, out yeah, yeah I was like I, when you, you said I don't know if this is completely true I haven't seen it for definite but news news flying around <laughs> is that I'm wearing proper snooker snooker glasses and, and then when I saw you in the car yeah. I said yeah it's true I am 
Um, but yeah, the the guy Chris Cheshire from Snooker Specs, um, he he it's not like he's round the corner from me. It's mm. like about a good hour and a half, two hour drive. And I remember I said to him, I need to come and see you because I've got a slight issue with one side of them. I think they like it wasn't sitting properly at the back of my ear. He went, don't worry, you're about on Monday. Yeah, I'm about Monday. I'll come to you. And literally, it was a 30-second job, and he's come all, and he's mm. done a four-hour-round journey just to sort it out. Mm. Um, he's looked after me very well. I, I can't, I can't knock him for that. Um, I think he sold quite a few pairs since. <laughs> you know, quite a few people. Yeah. Have, uh, I've had snooker players contact me mm. saying, um, "Where did you get them from? I want a pair like that." Mm. Kordesh has mm. just got a pair. Uh, some of the boys in my club, they've got a pair of them now. Um, one of the other guys, uh, Martin Wilkinson or something like that, his name is that works for the security here. Mm. He's just he's got a new pair. He, he's I think he said he ordered them on Tuesday. Um, so yeah, I think I think he said something about about twenty five thirty pairs he's sold since the World Championship. Mm. So it's good for him. Um, I'm still waiting for my my little <laughs> check <laughs> for all the publicity like that. <laughs> I wouldn't take it off him anyway. I, I, when when I wore his logo at the World Championship, I, I didn't take no money for it. Mm. I was like, no, no, what you've done for me, I can't charge you. Mm. I can't charge you to wear your logo. No way. Not for not after everything you've done for me. Mm. So a lot of people wouldn't have known that. They would have thought that I would have taken as much money as possible, and that wasn't the case. Mm. I was like, no, you've done a huge amount to help me. If I can do something to help you and repay it, not a problem. I said, don't ever give me any money for it I don't want it I said I'll just rip it up okay. so well there's also no money for this interview but I'm very grateful for you Martin, no, no, it's my, my pleasure. for opening up because I think it is important as you say to talk and if people are listening I guess the, the, the moral of the story is just try, there is help out there for you there, there, there definitely is help out there and also it's just finding the right people mm. uh, don't just talk to anybody just particular. I, I, I have uh, I have very limited friends uh, I used to have a lot of friends and now I've realised who are my friends and who are not um, so there'll be a lot of people that probably I haven't spoken to properly since like for a few months maybe even a bit longer and they they'd probably be wondering why I never came to them mm. it's because I don't trust them uh, I've had experiences where I've told people certain bits and pieces of my private life and they blab and I don't want people like that in my life. Um, I've got no time for people like that. I want to be able to know that if I talk to someone, I can trust them and mm. say, look, this is between me and you, This is, and this is gonna go no further, mm. unless I say you can tell someone. And um, that's, what, that's the good thing that I have with my good friend Ian Daniel. Between me and him, we just chat and like, sometimes we could chat to each other for about five six hours mm. on the phone could be a utter nonsense <laughs> half the time but we we just have a connection and um yeah it's very important to find people that you know you can trust mm. that that is a huge help because at least you know that you can trust them not to tell anybody like for instance i could tell you something leave the room and then all of a sudden you tell everybody and then mm. i'll be like oh thanks for that yeah <laughs> I might as well have just got a microphone <laughs> and done it myself. Mm. So, but yeah, there are ways and means to get to talk to people. I've had a lot of, particularly during the World Championship, Not so, I've had a few since, but I, I still get a few now and again. Uh, obviously, I've never met the people, but they, they've appreciated the fact that I've said something. Yeah. And it's helped them as well, because it made them want to yeah. try something. Um, so if I can help people, that's great. Obviously, I want to help myself as well. But mm. if I can, if me talking about certain bits and pieces, if that can help ten percent of the men, mm. at least I know I'm doing something right. I don't want it just to help me and just forget about everybody mm. else. I want anybody out there that's got a problem. If they want someone that they feel they can talk to and trust, they can always message me, and I, I I'm not going to pass on any information to anybody. But that's that's completely up to them but if if they've got someone in whether it be loved ones wife kids well not so much kids unless they're old enough mm. to understand but particularly family wife 
good friends that you know you can trust which like like I say I've probably only got about five real good friends that I can talk to not, maybe not even that many um, but at least I know that if I do feel as if I've got a problem I can ring one of them and I know yeah. I can trust them yeah. and not worry about turning up playing golf or going to a pub a few days later and saying oh so and so told me yeah. you've got a problem mm. so it's, it's, it's nice if you can find someone that you know you can trust and just sure. express it, it's not a case that you have to go full blooded and tell them everything just even if you do it just in step by step mm. just find someone that you know you can trust and just have a word with them and just say look this is what what's going on I need someone to talk to can you help me do this can you help me do that just one step at a time and just go go with it don't, don't feel like you need to bottle it up anymore cause yeah I found it certainly a lot more easier since I've opened up that I can feel as if I can, if I if I do feel a bit off, I can ring my dad and I, I feel as if I can talk to him about it now, mm. whereas before I, cu- I couldn't. So, but yeah, it, that would be my advice, definitely. Excellent. Well, it's been great to chat to you, Martin. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.